City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Limits. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR City Limits and that was the Punch Brothers with their beautiful ballad, Annabelle Lee. What do you think about that? I thought it was good. I thought it the voice sounded very much like Nina Simone to me, actually. It was, it was my, that was my impression, but anyway, it's uh, yeah, it a very, very pleasant voice, that one. Hmm. Hmm. The Punch Brothers, it was a book, wasn't it a woman? I think it was a man, yes. Was it? It just sounded like Nina Simone. That's interesting, well, isn't it? gender doesn't matter. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. Just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there yeah. you are. I mean, every time you listen to a song, you you know you're like, I need a genitals test on this. No, and sometimes you do have to think, is that a is that a male or a female voice? Sometimes they're a bit androgynous. Hmm. Yeah, but okay. I mean, people don't really sing with their genitals either. No, they don't. I mean, not no. often. Not, no, not no. Not usually. <laughs> not always. Some people do origami <laughs> with their genitals, obviously. Some talk through the near mm, thing, yeah, thing that's near true. it. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, that's another question. <laughs> uh, it is the uh, it's the third Wednesday. Remember, that's what it is, Corey. You're Corey. I'm Kevin. And um, and today's housing day, and we're going to have uh, Gemma White coming in from Housing with the Aged Action Group. She's um, some sort of liaison officer, but she's done a, doing a report or is about to complete a report about isolation and um, and, and impact on some migrant areas, etc. We, we'll find out from her, but it's a report about those aspects of housing and people in isolation and all that. So we'll, we'll find out what it's about, but it sounds like a really interesting report she's done. Basically, it sounds like another marginalised group who's missing out on <laughs> basic services. And when you say discrimination doesn't matter, it does matter. It matters in very, very real ways. Yeah, yes, it certainly does. In and the end, uh, it matters in, you know, years of your life loss. Yep, and well, that's right. We, we may well find out from those sort of issues. So we'll be talking to her in the last half of the program. The first half, we were going to discuss the BHP uh, spill in Brazil, and it's relation, just in relation to how internationally these companies treat the environment. Mm. Uh, with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth, who looks at a lot of these issues, but Cam currently is riding on a train somewhere and he's not available. But he, we're going to do that discussion next Wednesday, so we'll have him in for that. Uh, and the train might have arrived by next Wednesday. Well, it, let's hope so, yes. Or let's hope it's come back to us. So anyway, he's, he's nearby. Uh, but um, anyway, that's uh, so we'll be talking to Cam on that next week. But I thought, therefore, there's plenty of stuff to talk about. I thought we'd go through a number of issues. Um, I suppose it's a bit hard not to mention France at all. Um, you made a point off air about you know some pretty obvious points about uh, which... But, but it might be obvious, but our media isn't saying them. Okay, well, you know, I obviously feel bad for the French, um, the French civilians that were bombed, but they're in a war. And I feel like, you know, if you go to another country and bomb them, they're probably going to come back and bomb you. That's, mm. And on both sides, like, and then France went and bombed Syria. I mean, did they even know that it was Syria, you know, the Syrian government who set off the bombs. I thought it was something to well, do with that. Well, their argument is that IS is in part of Syria and they're bombing IS in Syria. That would be their argument. But, yeah, mm. yeah. but in the end, it's just civilians, you know, that are killed on either side, which is why we have to be so 
diligently anti-war. You know, I saw a, a French slogan, their wars, our deaths, sort of mm. thing. Um, yeah. And we would, I mean, we would argue clearly that these groups only exist because we went there in the first place and caused massive disruption. Plus, historically, mm. we've we've treated the Middle East as part of, you know, as, as Western, just a Western area for profit and rape. And uh, we've, we've, we've created the boundaries. We've done all the things. We've set up Palestine. We've set up Israel mm. and, and, and what all the terrible things that have happened to the Palestinian people, which I think is at the root of a lot of this as well anyway. So it's all, it's all those things. Well, weren't most of the boundaries of the Middle East drawn after World War Two? Yes, and the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Yes, they drew they drew up the boundaries. So they're all artificial. It's like you know Africa, where we cook about, or even closer to us, Papua New Guinea, where boundaries have been drawn up by colonialists. Or the states of Australia. Well, the states of Australia, in that sense, yeah, yeah. You know, but, with absolutely, <laughs> you know, nobody thinking about language groups or who was there first or. No. Anything that would actually make sense. They just drew a bunch of straight lines on a map mm. and went, all right, this bit's yours, this bit's mine. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and around the world, it depended upon, across Africa, across um, the Middle East, it depended on which colonialist you know, controlled which bit as to where the boundaries went in the end of it all. Mm. Uh, so you know, nothing to do with local, with local religion, local tribes, local anything else. Did you Local know ethnicity. that the French, the French government, are still making um, their ex uh, colonies uh, pay back reparations for all of the uh, amazing French infrastructure and you know culture that they brought to Africa? Isn't yeah. that incredible? Yes, yes. So they come in, they invade the place, they steal everything, you know, knock up a few schools and roads and government buildings. And then they're, now they're forced to pay reparations, and the countries that refuse, French, have just gone in and destroyed everything. Yeah, like, yeah, that's, they, it's like pretty. The role of colonialists around the world, you know, Britain, France, now the US is trying to outdo them all around the world, but they. It's dreadful, mm. absolutely dreadful. Interestingly enough, last Friday, the very day it all happened in Paris, on that day, um, the Hassan Rouhani, the president of, Ira- of Iran, was to have uh, a meal. <laughs> this is sort of madness, really. <laughs> have a meal with the French. There's going to be a big state dinner for him with the, with, with, um, the French president. But the Iranians said they'd only go if it was wine-free and halal meat. And the French wouldn't agree to the wine-free and halal meat bit, so the dinner was dinner was knocked off. So then they said, maybe we can have a breakfast, uh, an alcohol-free breakfast, and the Iranians wouldn't agree to that because that was a real downer. So they actually didn't have a dinner at all. They just met without food uh, in the end of all that. So, uh, you know, world diplomacy can become absolutely mad. That, absolutely that mad. That is hilarious. The, the sort of people... <laughs> You know, um, coming from many relatives in country Queensland who can't who can't eat a meal without meat in it. It's like they have to sacrifice an animal three times a day to make themselves feel good about eating. <laughs> mm. Just, yep. just don't eat an animal if you you know worried about halal or you know, and don't don't drink all the time. Like it's just incredible. Once again, it it really sounds to me like the French are. are are bogans from Queensland. Um, you know, I say bogans with pride and and love. But um as part of that culture there's definitely a lot of uh 
we must eat meat all the time and we must drink alcohol all the time. And if you don't do those things, you are very weird. Yeah, we were talking the other day about the Mediterranean diet with some people and uh, we were saying that they, you know, no matter what time of day, they often have a glass of wine with their meal, but they have a glass of wine Mm. (laughs) as opposed to some of us who (laughs) might refill it a couple of times. The, another one just interesting about France, um, in, you know, our attitude to um, Hollande and whether we'd consider him to be you know, some some sort of socialist. I think we probably would not put him down in the socialist column if you had political columns there. Can uh, I say, though, the Nazis were technically socialists, so maybe he's one of those hmm. socialism for white people, death camps for everyone else. Maybe. We, I suppose you wouldn't call him a national socialist, but at least, you know, where he is. But well, anyway... He's well. He's national in the sense that he's very French, yeah, but not. And he's not very the nationalistic, and they're yeah. awful to their immigrants, which is another reason why I wasn't surprised well, that you know Muslims, some of whom were from that country, went and yeah. blew things up. I mean, they're freaking awful to their immigrants. I France. just wish if terrorists were to uh, do such things, they'd go after the Hollands and the Blairs and the Howards and the uh, Bushes and Co. rather than the innocent people in the street. But then, well, that's. Uh, Mm. That's, that's, I mean, if you're going to die do. anyway, you may as well yeah. give it a shot. Yeah, that's right. Well, Ramsey Healthcare, which is one of the big private health companies in Australia, it now in fact owns more hospitals in France than it does in Australia. It's got 101 private hospitals in France. But it's complaining over there because the government puts lots more money into the public health care and it pays for public health over there than them. And so they're quite disturbed. And at the shareholders meeting here in Sydney last week, the head of them, a bloke called Chris Rex, said, right now there is a government in place which is overtly socialist. The risk was highlighted to investors in March when the French government revealed a shock 2.5% cut in the tariffs it would pay to private hospital operators for patient medical care. But he goes on to say that he hopes there'll be a change at the next election and I'll get a government that's you know more committed to anti-socialist measures like giving him profit. Um, why don't you say the entirety of his name? Uh, Chris Rex, your healthcare system for profit. It's a bit long. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. I bet he got teased in school for that one. Yes. <laughs> That's right, king size. <laughs> the, uh, the other one, just the other one, just the final bit on that, really. Um, headline in the Herald Sun on Monday, a so-called think article. Reality is harsh when only one side puts value on life. And I was thinking, well, all the people bombed by the Americans the other week in the Médecins Frontier Hospital... Uh, all the victims of the invasions of Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., the aftermath of that which we're seeing now in things like Paris last week, might wonder about whether we do have that uh, only one side puts value on life and what value we do put in that sense. Mm, it's always uh, whose life. Yes, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So that's true. Um, and, you know, which is another thing, you know, which uh, many people have commented on, the, the disparity between the reporting of... And Beirut. Of the white people who lost their lives yeah. in Paris, as opposed to, and others. I mean, there's been others around the world, but but they get they get a few pars on the world page, and mm. suddenly you get seven or eight or ten pages up front once it happens in a white Christian civilized city. <laughs> yeah, that's that. Okay, I think we've done that to death. No pun intended. Um, the the couple of few more workers got killed on sites last week. I won't go into that because it doesn't really, you know, it's just it's so irrelevant compared to uh, terrorism, isn't it? Because it's not terrorism and work sites. Um, this uh, interesting piece this week, uh, 
6.8% of the Australian workforce, which is 690, nearly 700,000 workers, are losing $2.6 billion a year because employers aren't putting their super and their compulsory super contributions away. Hmm. And um, there's a whole article about it here. Um, and they and one one sixty year old employee who who requested anonymity for fear of losing his latest job said he lost his job six weeks ago when he realised um, his boss hadn't been paying his super. I wasn't given a pay slip, so I didn't realise that I wasn't getting my super. When he found out, he confronted the boss. He said, "I, be, I believe thirty to forty workers haven't been paid. They don't know because they don't get pay slips." Now this is all very good because in fact. Uh, and the Australian Institute of Superannuation, Trust, Superannuation Trustees said, we are concerned that this fails to represent any serious attempt at reform. The measure reduces the costs, etc., because the government, believe it or not, as it's, you know, with royal commissions and things, it's clearly about to bring in even harsher measures against unions and workers for taking any industrial action. It's actually reducing the penalties for employers who don't put in the superannuation contribution. So while these figures are coming out, it's actually reducing the penalties. And the Institute says, we're concerned that this fails to represent any serious attempt at reform. The measure reduces the costs of non-compliance to a trifling amount with the administrative cost of $20 being the only remaining serious disincentive. Wow. How about that? And the minister responsible, who's Kelly O'Dwyer, said, oh, no, the government's serious about this. It's, it's, it is reducing the penalties, but it doesn't stop penalties being imposed that are very significant. In fact, we believe that is very important. Now, $20 fee doesn't seem to me to, for an employer to be all that, all that tough. Hmm. And, you know, in the end, um, is it who's picking up the bill of, you know, one day these people are going to grow old and they are going to need to be looked after? Yes, yes. I mean, and it could be that... I mean, if, not within this next three-year election cycle, but... No, and this bloke twigged, but, I mean, there, there could be workers who don't twig and get to a certain stage and realise that what they thought they had for their retirement, they haven't got. Mm. Well, not could be, they must be. But it seems like the government isn't even working in its own interests. I mean... No. It's just working in the interests of the ruling class. But, yeah... You know, um, if if people don't have super, then are they going to have to have a pension? Are they going to end up on the street? Are they going to end up in jail? You know. Um, I mean, obviously, it's most convenient for the government if you just die early, but a lot of people cling on to life, and, yeah, and that them. that costs the state. There's a lot of selfish people in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and you have to do maths to consider that some people will cling on to life. Yeah. And prepare for that sort of thing. Yes, yes. Uh, well, that, that, may be, that may be the next step. We just... You're clinging on to life. How do you feel about oh. that? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, Ed. <laughs> I feel terrible. I feel I'm letting the country down. But I'm, yes, I, I, I do. I seriously feel like I'm... You're such a burden on the state. That's right. I'm, I really feel like I'm heading, letting this country down very badly indeed. Speaking of changing laws... You'll be pleased to know also, in the wake of the latest BHP disaster in Brazil, and you know we all know about all the other things that are happening around the world with environmental damage by mines and the fights in Australia to save us um, from further <coughs> coal mines, the Environment Minister Hunt, I don't know why he's called Environment, well, I suppose he is, he ruins it, um, he's restarted negotiations with Senate crossbenchers on laws streamlining the approval of large coal mines and <laughs> coal seam gas projects. 
they proposed changing the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act to allow the states and territories to approve projects that may have significant impact on water resources. So while all that's going on and great damage to the environment, they're actually trying now to water down, um, no pun intended again, environment laws uh, so that mines can start up without having to go through the stupid process of having to go through some stupid environmental thing. You don't think that the government's trying to increase our water supply by raising the sea level, do you? Maybe, but then, you know, you don't want to drink... I suppose you could put in more desol plants, I suppose. That's one way around that, I suppose. And they, they've been they've proved to be pretty useful financially. Hmm. I mean, it's a pretty drastic measure, but I suppose water's pretty important. Why not uh, raise the sea level by a couple of metres? Pardon? Why not raise the sea level by a couple of metres? I thought I heard you. <laughs> Plenty of water. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, the, the usual Herald Sun idiot columnist, he says not only now to the majority of Australians, he says now, uh, now don't believe in climate change. They mm. realise it's a warmest lie. Um, he obviously has been putting his polling booths in cemeteries. Um, he, um, he now also says that those islands aren't actually sinking. They're actually rising. They're rising, he says. Under what pressure? Uh, I don't know, but uh, anyway, they're rising. So When he says the majority of Australians, does he mean the majority of people he considers Australians? Probably. So that's just old, rich mm, white men. Probably did a, did a whip round the Herald Sun office. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine him including immigrants or Aboriginal people or women. So if you take all those categories out, maybe the majority of Australians do honestly believe that. Islands are rising out of the ocean for no particular reason. Oh, I don't. Well, maybe. No, he doesn't say the majority. He, he says they are, but it's on climate change itself that he says the majority now uh. realise it's, the, you know, it's it's wrong. Uh. Yeah. So uh, no, he he doesn't um, he doesn't go as far as to uh, to say the majority, but he will shortly when he's when he's convinced them. Yes. Yes. So we listen yeah. to a track. Let's listen to a track. Okay, this is um, The Last Connection with the fact you're listening to 3CR City Limits and the time is 9.24. You're listening to 3CR City Limits, the time is 9.28 and that was The Last Connection with the fat. Um, we have here on the show Gemma White, who is a project worker from Housing for the Aged Action Group. Welcome. Thank you. And Gemma, recently you've done a, uh, well, we always have, but perhaps we should announce the House of Good Age Action Group come in every month on the third Wednesday, and um, Gemma's in today um, to talk about a project you've been working on, and uh, I suppose quite simply, Gemma, tell us about the project. So the project, the name of the project is Preventing Homelessness in Older Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Background Communities. So um, that's a little bit of jargon. It basically means that we're helping to prevent people who are from non-English-speaking backgrounds um, from becoming homeless. And we do that by um, reaching out to those communities and making sure that they have information about um, their housing options and where to get help if they're experiencing um, housing stress or housing crisis. And what sort of factors um, lead to people from non-English backgrounds becoming homeless? Well, generally it's the same sort of factors that uh, everywhere, especially for older people. So things like rent being completely unaffordable, especially if you're on an age pension. Mm-hmm. So um, 
At the moment, the medium rent for Melbourne or for the Metro Melbourne area is about $320 a week, and that's 73% of the maximum age pension that you can get. So obviously anyone that's on a pension trying to rent is struggling already. So Mm. that's a really major factor. Um, Other factors are people receiving a notice to vacate, obviously. Um, But there are also some other factors that we find, particularly in some culturally diverse communities, Um, And that is that people are often um, living with family because maybe maybe it was the only option or maybe for for them there's a preference to live with family and sometimes that relationship um, breaks down and then they have nowhere to go. So that's something that we're finding a lot with this project. Mm. Mm, And that's um, that's a problem often generally, but uh, I know there's been law reports about how older people are often... You know, the the young the the family will buy up their home or something mm. and then throw them out ultimately you know, after being promised all sorts of things. Is it similar to that or are there different aspects of what you've been looking at? Um, there are similar things to that. For example, some people might come um, to Australia from overseas and they might have said to their kids, oh, look, they might have actually sold their property to be able to come here in the first place to get a visa because mm. some of the visas that people are getting um, are like $45,000 to come here. Holy mackerel. Yeah, yeah. And you don't get that back or anything? And um, No, you don't get it back. You have to pay that to get the visa, which is pretty crazy. So people mm. have already sold their house, so they're already sort of essentially homeless when they arrive. So they might be coming in to live with their children then. But they also might um, – there might be sort of an idea um, that people should – pay the mortgage of their children. So if they do have any money when they come over, um, it's been talked about in the groups that um, the community reference groups that I've been chatting to have been saying that, you know, we really want to pay for our children's mortgage because we don't want them to have debt. We have a bit of money. So that's our preference. But then after that, Mm. you know, they live with them for five, ten years. um, Things start to break down. Maybe the grandkids grow up and they don't, the kids don't feel like they're useful anymore, which is an awful thing. Mm. Um, And then they've, Again, not know, got nowhere to go and don't have any sort of legal recourse to be able to get their money back often as well because they've given it as a as a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are the kind of barriers that people from a non-English speaking background have to accessing homeless services? So I guess the main barrier is that information often isn't available in people's languages. So um, we've made an effort with this project to translate a lot of our materials but not just translate them um, meet with groups and make sure that the materials we're producing are relevant to the community Um, so some of the things that we might say for some communities are not relevant to others so for example we might say to the Chinese community because the group has told us that they know about public housing and they just want to get public housing so we can say in the brochure public housing is 25% of um, your income you know it's affordable we can help you to get it bam that's it but for other communities they might not know anything about public housing there might even be a stigma around public housing or um, the idea of living independently might be uh, something that they're not familiar with or not comfortable with so we might have to say something like living independently has helped me um, to improve my relationship with my family or something like that so it's not just about translating materials it's about making sure that materials are appropriate um, and relevant for the community so that's one of the barriers is having materials that are accessible and in the right language Um, and other barriers are things like um, you know talking within the community about the issue and making sure that they feel comfortable coming to um, your service because it might be seen in the community as being um 
a bit of shame associated with going to the government for help, for example, mm. which seems crazy, but um, yeah, it, it is an issue. So that's something that that's why we get um, workers from that community to talk to the community about the issue, and it sort of like normalizes it and makes makes it so that um, they feel comfortable coming to a service like ours. You mentioned um, people isolation or not feeling strange, sort of going out on their own, being independent. Are you talking? Are you mostly talking about single people, um, single older mm. people, or, or are they still in couples? Some of them. It, it depends a lot on the community, actually, from what we've experienced. That there, a lot of people from the um, Chinese community are, are in couples, and there are other communities that are often in. Um, on their own as well. So, mm. yeah, I don't. I think it's it's not so much about living independently on their own. It's just about living separately with their fa- from their family. That's the issue because there's the idea that um, in some communities that families should look after their parents, yeah, and yeah. if they're not looking after their parents, either the parents have done something wrong or the children have done something wrong. Mm. Yeah. Uh, is there a, is there a some sort of reason? I mean, given that there are those some of those cultural backgrounds of family looking after. What's causing the breakdown? Is it the Australian society of, of the, the second generation becoming mm. Australianised or whatever? Is that what's happening? Yeah, there, there can be a lot of that. There can be a lot of different expectations from the parents to the children. So maybe the children have lived here for a long time. And as you said, they're living in this sort of Australian way. And um, the parents sort of expect that they will come and they'll live in the way that they lived in India, for example. And so there are sort of different expectations between the parents and the children. Like the parents might expect that they'll hang out with the children, you know, they'll go out on the weekend and hang out with the children and the children might have their own life and not want to do that. So that's definitely a cause of some of the breakdown. Mm. Yeah. Uh, And does this lead, does it in many cases lead to absolute homelessness? Um. Sometimes it does, definitely. Um, but at the aim of this project is to make sure that they get information and know that help is available before they're at the point of being absolutely homeless. So we try to get to them before um, their kids, you know, sort of kick them out or something like that so that they know they can call us and we can help them to get housing. Um, but we have ha- had instances where people are living on, you know, friends' couches and that sort of thing, definitely. Mm. Um, is one of the causes of the separation um, LGBTIQ issues? Um, for the children? Mm. Yeah, that we have had, I know, I can think of one case at the moment in my head where there has been the son who wanted to live with his partner, but the parents didn't um, agree with that or didn't really understand that. And so he felt like his parents had to move out so that he could live with his partner. Mm. Yeah, that is sort of one of those. But it's still, I think, in the communities that we've been working with, there's still, um, it's hidden a little bit as well. It's not talked about. So that that may have been the issue, but nobody's actually raised it as the issue. Mm. And how many different how many different nationalities is there? Is it really incredibly diverse, the ones you're working with? Um, So the, the community groups that we're working with are Chinese, um, Arabic-speaking, Croatian, Bosnian, Serbian and South Asian, so sort of Indian and Pakistani backgrounds. But within that, yeah, those are the language groups that we're working with, but there are a lot of um, different nationalities in those as well. Mm. And you mentioned having discussion groups or groups to... Um, how do you get them together? How do people know about your project for a start? It's always interesting how people know about these things. Yeah. And, um, therefore, and how do you then get people together and how are they reacting to those discussion groups? Yeah, so um, we did it in a couple of ways. Um, 
the project I should have really mentioned at the beginning is a collaboration between Housing for the Age Action Group and the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria. Mm. So they've been really instrumental in helping us to um, link in with a lot of the communities. So to begin with, we used the contacts that we had through them as well as just um, uh, sending out letters and uh calling up you know community group leaders and that sort of thing um, to get people together so the groups that we have some of them are service providers that provide um, assistance to people from those communities and some of them are just volunteers um, because those communities are not don't have a lot of services that that assist them so they're just some community volunteers right so so are you when you say getting those people together are the people who are actually talking about the isolated people themselves are they coming to those groups or is it is it people representing them as you say the volunteers or the people in the various various community groups yeah that's a really good question um most of them are sort of volunteers and service providers that work with the older people a lot and the reason is because um for we needed people that were bilingual to be able to have those discussions at the time. And I think you're right, if we did it again, we would have the people who have experienced or are experiencing those issues mm. at the table and have interpreters. But for this project, because of the way that it had, similar projects have been done in the past, we use um, often workers that, had worked, that work specifically with this group right. who are bilingual. So how do you then meet the people themselves that are the sub, really the subject of your report? Yeah. Do you then go from those meetings and how do you meet them? Um, basically, they're clients of Home at Last. So um, those uh, those people come into the service through... We do community education um, sessions and then through that they come into the service or they come into the service through links that um, we've made with the community leaders. So, for example, um, we've, one of the people that would be sitting at the table... You know, they they have really good links to the community. They talk to people within their community, and people in the community know that they know about housing and come to them for housing issues. So those community leaders then make referrals to Home at Last, and then those clients come through the service. So we've had, I think, about 160, or I think it would be even more now, people that have called up from those communities um, for help with housing, and that's how we get to know um, their, their case scenarios and that sort of thing. And um, have you been able to help them? Have you got that sort of resources? Yeah, so the Home at Last service is sort of a statewide intake point for housing services across the state. So that means that people call us, we give information and advice, and we refer into other services that directly help people with their housing applications. So sometimes it's our service that can do that direct assistance, and sometimes it's other services. So um, we've housed, I think... 18 people so far from those communities and then we've referred the rest of them to other services that would do the same so we sort of assume that if they've come to us and they're eligible for housing assistance that they would have hopefully been housed yeah cool yeah and what do you see as uh, the long-term solutions to this um problem of the changing culture That's a really good question and to be honest, one that I haven't got to the point of um, thinking about at the moment. But projects similar to this I think should be repeated in all services. I mean, we've just realised that there are just huge groups of people that we've never been able to access before, who've never known about our service and who are having housing crisis and not able to get any help. So these are just the, the, you know, communities that we've selected. There are a whole other load of communities out there who don't know how to get help for housing and for every other issue that's that's out there sort of thing so um 
all services need to do similar projects where they reach out to the communities that are not using their services very much and where they um, make sure that they can actually access the services. I think that's really important. Mm. Yeah. And the impact of isolation in that sort of situation, and particularly if, you're, if it's not your first language that you're dealing with, and you say many people you know, can't read in English anyway, mm. uh, must be pretty devastating. Oh, yeah, definitely. And people are... People that um, don't have a lot of money, basically, are even more isolated because if they're renting, they're having to go further and further out to be able to rent something affordable. Mm. So that they may have had to leave their community to be able to find somewhere affordable. Yes. So they might be completely um, you know, isolated and they probably can't go to things like planned activity groups because they don't have the money to get there in the first place. Um, so things like radio are really important in being able to reach those groups. And part of this project has been... Um, getting bilingual workers to speak on their local ethnic radio um, so that people that, you know, aren't even leaving their house are able to get that basic information. Hmm. It seems like um, ultimately, uh, you know, a lot of the problem comes down with the the crazy rent in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Can you talk about that? Yeah, sorry, that is the most obvious (laughs) issue, of course. (laughs) It's so obvious almost that it just gets skipped over, of course. Yeah, um, that's the fundamental core issue. There needs to be a lot more public housing um, Mm. so that people are able to access public housing when they need it and not have to sit on waiting lists and not have to risk becoming homeless because they're sitting on a waiting list. They should be able to get into public housing as soon as they need it and there needs to be enough for everyone that's renting basically in you know in their um older years or when they're on a pension Mm. yeah that's a huge issue obviously which brings us of course to a further problem april was telling me yesterday april bragg your co-worker was telling me yesterday probably people who don't know who she is um uh, was telling me yesterday that the government is in fact handing more and more public housing over to um so-called social housing etc um giving it away um Mm. rather than building more and we would argue surely we need more and more of it rather than keep giving it away yeah which must make your job even harder It's ridiculous. I mean, the other day I walked past the Carlton public housing estate and it seems like they're um, selling it off privately, a a big chunk of it, you know, to people that want to buy apartments. And um, I don't even think they're affordable. So it's just, it's quite ridiculous. It's, Mm. yeah, it's really distressing. Mm. It's amazing. Like you can buy an apartment, I don't know, for say $150,000 in the city and it's the smallest little box and you spend 30 years paying it off and then, mm. you know, what have you got? This tiny little... <laughs> like, it's crazy. It's just absurd how much housing costs here. And it's not 100000 it's like five, 600000 for an apartment. It's Whoa. insane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they... Oh, well, I... I had got a cutting here somewhere, but up in Sydney at uh, Miller's Point, which is right above, you know, Miller's Point is right above the quay, and it's public housing saved by the Green Bands in the seventies. But and um, and my cousin lived there, so I used to stay there when I went to Sydney. I mean, in fact, we watched the nineteen eighty eight bicentenary. Uh, um, fireworks from the balcony and all that sort of stuff. Um, beautiful spot saved, but now the New South Wales government is getting rid of it. It's it's selling it off, and I noticed this week there's several more gone for several million dollars in that area and around the new Barangaroo, which is close to it, development. Mm. Uh, and so eventually now the developers who used to walk around the streets drooling um, uh, uh, getting their, their hands on mm. what was beautiful public. And the government's excuse is it'll allow us to build more public housing, but for Christ's sake, they've already got it. So you're selling public housing, ideally located, 
for, for people who haven't got cars and, you know, mm. work lower income, right on the edge of the city, um, to say, well, we'll put people out in the, the, the wild somewhere. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense no. at all. No. no. As someone who's experienced housing stress, sometimes I feel like, you know, it would be really good if Melbourne would just let people build slums. You know what I mean? And not move you on. It'd be like a slightly better solution. Uh, can I t- or go on? You really answer that? Will you? Oh, just that. It'd just be great if the government would just provide housing and take responsibility for providing housing that's a decent standard for everyone, so that we wouldn't have to have things like slums. Right. And you know, there are really bad quality housing that people are renting out. Yeah, and it's just yeah, it's not acceptable. Well, we'll see report that answer and we'll play that every time on housing. We'll just play it over and over for our housing days. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's that's the summed up. Can I? By the way, I need to make. I meant to make an apology much earlier in the show, uh, Corey, and I forgot. Uh-huh. This is quite disturbing. Jimmy, you're going to be most upset when you hear this. Due to renovations in the building at the moment and in the kitchen, we couldn't have tea today. Yes. And so listeners who love hearing the pouring of the tea, um, our apologies, but that's life. We, we're we sitting here devoid of tea. Yeah, and sorry for the general lower quality of the programming. We're fueled by that's tea. That's right, that's right. We just can't spark today. But yeah. uh, on that last point, there was an article recently coming out of Reuters written by a woman called Estelle Sherbon about London. I'll read this inter alia because it's quite devastating and it goes to some of the things we're talking about. Janet and Larry Colfer like to go for Sunday lunch at an old haunt in Elephant and Castle where they lived for 36 years until their run-down social housing estate was knocked down to make way for smart new apartment blocks. On their way, the retired couple passed hoardings advertising Elephant Park, the new quarter that will replace the old Haygate estate. These depict an urban idol full of smiling young residents relaxing in gardens bathed in dappled sunlight. And it goes on to say that, um, you know, these, well, it's classic. There were people have all been forced out. And those who actually bought property there have been bought up at less, so they now have to move miles away. The residents who lived there have been moved all over the place. Um, and one bloke, uh, Redpath, 68, whose family had been in the area for three generations, received £172,000 for his three-bedroom home and had to move 13 miles away to Bexley on the edge. To add insult to injury, I have recently received uh, emails asking if I would like to express interest in flats being marketed at £550,000 to be built almost on the exact location that my Masonite once stood. And it goes on. Local housing campaigners say these homes will remain out of reach for those on the lower, lowest incomes. Surprise, surprise, etc. But it's just another classic case of uh, gentrification. And of course, those in favour of it say, well, it's building up the area, it's making it better, it's, you know, and it diversifies etc which is a load of crap but it's just another example of uh, of what we're seeing here in many places where mm. the poor are being forced out mm. when we need more and more housing for them yeah. do you think um melbourne has a fundamental problem like um you know there's just too many people in a too small amount of land or do you think it's just a capitalism problem Anyone? No, I, I think it's a capitalism problem. It's the whole system, the whole rental market system and investment system. Um, yeah, I don't. There's yeah. not too many people. We've got, we've got a lot of space, mm. and we've got decent in infrastructure. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, it, well, it's a capitalism problem because, on the one hand, they we're, we're now seeing because apartments are now regarded as where you make money. We're seeing apartments going up all over the place and mm. everywhere rather than and, – and they knock – like we recently we saw a buyer in buy some 
multi-million dollar house in uh, in Turak and tear it down without a permit because she wants to uh, obviously put more on the site. There's more value in it, although it was a heritage joint, but it went down anyway, and you know, it's a, once it's down, it's down. Hmm. Um, so we're seeing that, but also on the outskirts, the, the, the developers keep saying um, the problem is the government isn't making enough land available on the outskirts. That would lower the prices of housing. But most of those big developers hold thousands of acres of land waiting for the price to hit the right price before they'll sell it anyway. So they, if their argument was correct, all, those, all the land they now hold they'd be selling, but of course they're not. They, they hold land until the price is right from their point of view. And of course, as you put the city out, you're destroying more and more of the ecology and the environment and you know grasslands, etc., that have become rarer and rarer. Uh, so it is. It's a capitalist. It is a capitalist problem. Um, although they're, they're, I think there could come a time when you argue cities can get too big for their own good. Hmm. I read a report recently that um, said that the occupancy rate um, in South Bank is uh, is it South Bank? Mm, could be. Yeah. Yeah. Is um, only eighty percent. So there's like one in five buildings that are, are standing unoccupied. I, I don't even know how this can happen. It's right in the middle of the city. Probably because they want too much rent for them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, most of Gemma's clients would not be able to afford the rent in South Bank. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just don't understand from a capitalist point of view, you know, supply and demand, why, why they haven't lowered the prices. Yeah, maybe uh, they just got greedy and, um, and built too much and people have paid too much for their apartments yeah, they and open. they're not able to make their money back. Well, there was another article here somewhere boasting in recent um, where, where um, landlords, etc., and the, well, the big companies uh, are saying that, sadly, uh, rents have risen. The, the, the proportion of, I think it's, they've gone up by less than they did a, a year ago. So they're saying rents haven't gone up by enough. Um, now I'm sure your again your clients in the private sector would feel they should be paying a bit more, wouldn't they, Jim? <laughs> yeah, I mean people can't afford more. That's the thing. So that's if they put rents up, then people would go and look for something cheaper. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, the report was saying um, that it was uh, speculative housing. So um, a lot of developers build housing in the hope that one day they'll make more money out of it. But you know they don't. They don't necessarily need to fill it with an occupant who's paying rent for them to make a profit. They just need to mm. buy oh, it, build it, sit on it, and mm. then sell it in a couple of years. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and um, you know, it's, it's, it's another it's another irony, but not an irony to us, but it's another contradiction that they keep saying that developers keep saying how they want to be able to provide affordable housing. But, of course, they keep cheering and rubbing their hands when prices go up, and they never bring prices down, of course. The, so mm. they actually keep keep talking about the need for prices to keep going up while they talk about affordable housing in the same breath, which mm. I think is a slight contradiction. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's the housing market. Just uh, on the uh, – where, where do you go from here? I mean, with all this, when the report comes out, where do you want it to go? Um, so we're releasing the report on the 4th of December at the Melbourne Town Hall and we, there's going to be the Minister for Multicultural Affairs, Robin Scott, will be there. Um, we hope that the, the Department of Human Services and other funding bodies will read the report and see how necessary it's been and how valuable it's 
been to be able to reach out to those groups that uh, would otherwise have not been able to get assistance. Um, so, for example, we've at home at last since it's been operating for the last three years has been about. 30 to 35 percent of its clients have been from a culturally diverse background um, and that sort of represents the proportion of people in the community that are from that background who are over 55 but um, from the since the project started it's been at about 55 percent of our clients have been from a cold background so um, it's been so valuable to reach out to those people that really need assistance who might be isolated um, who might end up you know, street homeless. So um, we just hope that they see the value in doing things like this and that they can, um, you know, not only our service to continue this kind of project, but that other services can do the same thing mm. as well. Because you did mention also that you've got a, you know, you've, there's a specific groups you've been working with. Yeah. But there, you mentioned that there must be lots of other people out there you're not getting to. Oh, definitely. Uh, um, is there any thought of how you get to them at all or...? Um, yeah, well, we just, just stay out there isolated, poor buggers. I mean, until we get more resources to be able to do a similar project again, mm. um, unfortunately, they will stay isolated because it's it does cost a lot of money to do translating. It takes a lot of time to do um, work with the reference groups. You know, it took a year to do this project, so um, you really need sort of a full time worker to be able to yeah. do that. So those communities will remain. Um, isolated or not able to access the service until we can do something similar again. And um, call me a cynic, but I don't feel like the Department of Housing would be looking for more clients actively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you're completely right. Um, you know, HAG and... God, you're a cynic. <laughs> <laughs> HAG and Home at Last, are, uh, they're one of the few services that really do actively reach out to try and make sure, you know, we believe that everybody has a right to to housing, to decent housing, and we don't care if our service is flooded. I mean, we want the resources so that we can serve people um, properly, even if we have, you know, ten times more clients. But people have a right to access secure housing, um, so that's what we're there for. And, yeah, we're one of few services, and um, I know government departments as well, they don't actively reach out to make sure that people have access to things. Yeah, because the bottom line is the one you said, more public housing. If they did that, a lot of these problems would be overcome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. If they did that and people knew they could just, you know, call a number and get housing, none of these problems would exist in the first place. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, just, that can was... I just finish up, yeah, though, with right, telling you on, a little on. anecdote again, out, coming out of, uh, out, of, out of England, Bournemouth, I think, this time in England, a little story of, of real compassion for the homeless... Uh, who were congregating around the local railway station late at night near the toilets, which gave them toilets and get, kept a bit of warmth. But the, the local council then began blasting the place with bagpipe sounds <sighs> to force them out. Now, who knows where they've gone, uh, but they're no longer going to the station. But I thought that just reeked with compassion. Mm. <laughs> yeah. As if being homeless isn't bad enough. Yeah. Right. Well, being homeless is bad enough, but being homeless and going to sleep somewhere is apparently almost a crime mm. and you see yeah. that here in the city all the time where shops are blasting classical music in the middle of the night and you know that it's so that homeless people don't feel comfortable to sleep there crazy yeah, all right so it? what's going to be on this well, show? oh wait another, we should we should cheery note to finish on on city limits we've done it as usual so we had Gemma white from the housing for the aged action group and what are we going to do next week kevin next week we're talking to cam um 
Cam uh, from Walker. Uh, Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth about the BHP spill and, and uh, the way that companies around the world treat the environment um, generally. Uh, mm-hmm. We're also going to be talking to Kate Shaw from Melbourne. She's an academic at Melbourne, as we know, and um, also was part of Saves and Cool, all those things years ago, about planning issues in Melbourne generally next week. So it's, that's, it's a fourth Wednesday and it's that sort of show. So we'll be talking to both those people next week. Isn't that uh, wonderful, Corey? Aren't you excited? <laughs> we'll also, have, hopefully have tea next week as well. I'd also like to talk about the, um, the idea of the sacrifice zone from um, Naomi Klein's new book, This Changes Everything. I think that'll be quite um, interesting. All right, yes, yes. It, well, it touches on what we're going to be talking about very much. Yes, very much. All right, <laughs> the time's 9.58. You're listening to yeah. City Limits. Gemma, look, you, you're the guest today. Look, tell people, well, we've already told them what's on next week, but, but thank Corey for pressing buttons, doing wonderful things, and thanks for coming in yourself. Thank you very much for the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming on. This is um, Kid Cardi with Simple As. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.